I feel much smarter than they are, so we hope you figure it out. But anyway, now last week, you remember, we got into John chapter 9. And that chapter opened up uh, with a story of a blind man. And uh, during this story, as soon as everything transpired and God gave him his eyesight back, came back, uh, and when they were looking at dealing with him, the, the two questions came up. The question came up from the disciples, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? What was the deal? And then after he got his eyesight back, everybody got interested and wanted to know how the blind man now can see. And I showed you <coughs> that it was very important to get those in your Bible. And, uh, you know, and I, I lay it out like I do everything else, that there's a historical application to this. This story is true. He was a real blind man, and everything happened just the way that it happened. Doctrinally, that's doctrinally always be the prophetic as it deals with the second coming. This man is a picture of the nation of Israel with their spiritual blindness that they're rejecting the Messiah. Doc, uh, inspirationally, I showed you how that every blind man in the New Testament will be a picture of an unsaved man or an unsaved person. Also, in this story, how blind men in the Bible will all be a picture not only of an unsaved man, but how, in this case, it's a picture of when we go through the tough times of life. And tough times are going to come to all of us. Um... It's, uh, it, this, this will be invaluable to you. I talked about in life, God will give you great object lessons to learn from. And I think that probably one of the things that's missing in most of God's people's lives, um, and I don't know why, I guess maybe they just have so much else going on, that they fail to see around us and everything uh, that goes on. Uh, not only today, but if you want to understand today and tomorrow, then go back and look at the object lessons of history because history, as we well know by now, always will repeat itself. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 9, verse 17, that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. With that in mind, we find that then the nations themselves will form great object lessons for us. And, and America is in a, in a sad state. America is in a real mess. I, I don't have to, to uh, you know, lay that out. We all live in America, and we know that we, we, we're, we're really in trouble. And the trouble is only going to get worse. It isn't going to get any better. I think the, the key is for us to look at what's going on around us and understand why and where it's going we have to look at the great object lessons from other nations in history. There was a time when the nation of England was the greatest nation on the face of this planet. She ruled the seven seas. The little coin phrase was that the sun never set on the British soil. And the reason for that is because she had colonies everywhere. And the reason why she had such an impact in the world is because she was taking God's word, a King James 1611 authorized version around the world. And God blessed her. God gave her an incredible navy. God gave her incredible protection. God let her touch and kiss the face of this planet with the word of God. Where's she at today? 
well, she's probably an eighth-rate nation with all kinds of problems and, and has lost everything. And uh, it all goes back to she dumped the Word of God. I've told you before about Czechoslovakia. And uh, you can't find it on a map today. It's gone. But there was a time by, under a man by John Huss that that whole nation was uh, almost one to a saving knowledge of Christ. And it was an incredible, incredible place. Today, you can't even find it anymore. Why? Because of what they did with the Word of God. These are lessons. These are object lessons. These are things that we can learn from other nations that help us understand why we're in the mess that we're in today. And uh, it's look at Germany. Germany was the real leader in the Reformation as far as breaking the back of the Roman Catholic Church from Martin Luther. And uh, 200 years after the Reformation, they were right back in the same mess. Why? Because of what they didn't do with the Word of God. And yet, you know, it's a thing where you can use the same thing for in the great lives of men. I mean, the lives of great men in church history or in the world. They stand as great object lessons for us. I mean, to be able to look at the lessons in life from Martin Luther and Erasmus. I mean, it's incredible that what you can learn by the object lesson of those people's lives. We talk about George Whitfield and how God used him in the 1700s to bring in single-handedly with Jonathan Edwards, you know, the great first awakening. And, and, and what an object lesson. What an object lesson those men's lives are to us today. I think of David Brainerd. What incredible object lessons. If you are a Christian and you haven't read his diary, you're, you're, you're missing something in life. A young man who surrendered to be a missionary to the American Indians. And he, he was the object lessons that the great missionaries later on that went to India and went to Burma, they read his diary and God used that object lesson to reach those nations. Incredible. Incredible. I think of George Mueller, how he prayed in millions and millions of dollars in his day for his orphanages to win people to Christ, those young kids that he wanted to take in. And you know, and it's, it should be the same way in your life and my life. People ought to see the hand of God in our lives, the hand of God in our families, the hand of God in what we're trying to do. Light versus darkness. God will use everything in life to show you something if we're paying attention. And I showed you last week that there was a process to examine your own self when you and I go through really tough times. And I laid out seven clear aspects to our issues in life, things that we want to look for, things that we want to examine ourselves in. Uh, and, you know, that we want to really understand what we're going through and why. And that was last week, and, and yet this chapter just keeps getting better and better and better, and it's a unique chapter. Chapter 9, as far as I'm concerned, will be probably the most unique chapter in the Bible uh, if you understand what he's doing here. I, I don't know what you see when you see the Bible. I, I try to look at the Bible from every angle and try to stop and never blow through anything when to look at it. But I don't know if you've ever noticed that in this particular chapter, the Lord devoted a whole chapter to this man's life 
and God dealing with him. Now that may not mean much to you, but it's 41 verses. All about dealing with one man at the first coming of Christ. And like I said, that may mean not, not mean much to you, but when I read back in Genesis chapter 1, he only did 31 verses on the whole creation. There's something special about chapter 9. In Acts chapter 8, where we see the straight story, of what a great story it is, of the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch, which is a picture of our salvation, he only did it in 15 verses. For God to devote, knowing God the way I know him, for God to devote 41 verses and take up this much space to, to the event of one sinner who was blind and then gets his eyesight and all the events that surround that. There must be something very important here for us to unearth. Some special things about <clears throat> this chapter. And we're going to dig it out today. So, while your kids are in Bible Explorers and our Timothy kids are up there getting their Bible down, I would suggest that everyone that's got your hard hat in your backpack, you get your hard hat out, get your shovel, Bubba, bring in the backhoe, and let's do some digging this morning. Let's get into this chapter and see why he took 41 verses to lay this out. And I want to take verses 8 through 30 and break them down into five sections so we can better understand uh, what he wants us to learn from all of this. And so, you know, <clears throat> this is a great way, <clears throat> what I'm going to show you today, and just one of the ways, but this is a great way to lay out your Bible, taking a passage and breaking it down into smaller pieces so you're able to digest it. And this is what I want to do for you. God, God does the exact same thing with each book of the Bible. If you go on our website, and so many of you do, and I, uh, people use these all the time. Years ago, I, on a Sunday morning, I went through every book in the Bible, and I broke it down, those big books, into little pieces. Now, if you wanted to learn a book of the Bible, you just start with that. I give you all the little pieces, and then once you understand the pieces, then you can better put it back together. You know, as a Christian, I'm just a child. I'm really not much more than a baby Christian, and I have a childlike faith that I just look at that Bible that is way beyond my ability. And so I see that the way God wants me to approach it is like a little child. You know, when I was, Sharon, you'll remember this, my sister in Ohio who's listening this morning. Sharon, you'll remember this. When I was little, after you got done beating me up, <laughs> we'd sit down for dinner. And remember, Mom used to take, and I was just a little guy. Uh, I was still into beanie weenies at that point in life. And Mom would take dinner, and she would cut up the meat into small pieces. And she did that because I would choke on it. Being a little guy, I didn't have the ability to chew my food, still don't, and, and, and I would just get too much in my mouth, still do, and, uh, you know, and then obviously would choke on it. And, you know, and I remember her doing that, and, uh, you know, and so I, I remember that, and I think today, when it comes to the Word of God, the Bible, 
That's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to divide it up, break it down, so we don't choke on it. Uh, you'll notice that when I teach you the Bible, whether it's this morning or Thursday night, in any question, I always do that way. I get criticized, not criticized, probably a bad word. I get, I get people on the website from time to time will uh, encourage me to move a little faster and, you know, get more questions done, and, and I understand that. But you know what? I, I, I will never hurry through anything for you because I'm doing for you what I had to do for myself. I'm no better than you, and you're no better than me. We're all little children, and we need our food broken down for us and then be able to digest it that way. Break it down into smaller pieces. This is what I do. Uh, and many of you who are being discipled or somebody's working with you, that's what they do with you. That's why it takes, you know, we could be through those lessons once a week, but they don't do that. I think the world record is somebody took a year on lesson one. Now, that's great, probably a little too long, but anyway. But why do they take time doing those, two or three weeks on a lesson? So they can break it down. We don't do anybody any favor of rushing you through the Word of God because the Word of God is something that we need to look at every part of it, every aspect of it, and we need to break it down. Now, I'm going to read John chapter 9, verses 8 through 30. Told you wrong, Scott, 8 through 30. And then we'll break it down for you. Now, last week we saw that this blind man came to Jesus and he got his eyesight back. We saw that in chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7. So now we're going to pick it up in verse 8. So read along with me, if you will. He said this, The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that before time was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? And then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. 
But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How open he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore, will you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? And they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. And, we, that, and we, we know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is? And yet he hath opened mine eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for these good people that are here and the word of God that lays out before us. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us wisdom and insight into everything that we need to see today. Help us to glean why this chapter is so important. Why you would take 41 verses when you didn't take nearly that many to, to lay out the creation. What, 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 what do you want us to see today, Lord? And help us now to put it all together, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, out of this passage today... I think it's clear that the Lord wants us to understand what it really means to be his witness. We have been told and mandated to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and that he had the most parts of the earth. For us, that would be Kansas City, uh, that would be uh, Missouri, that would be America, and then that would be the world. Titus chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that our witness should be true, a true witness. A witness of God's power in our lives. All based on my being uh, an understanding the suffering of Christ First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 1, and that is being my witness. And yet, in spite of these verses, most of God's people, I'm, I'm sorry to say, most of God's people have a very shadow witness, or they have none at all. And I found that when God's people do witness, they're always telling people, and you've heard me say this before, they're always telling people, what God will do for them. This story, if it does anything, will destroy that myth. This story will completely show us how wrong that idea of a witness really is. Because the greatest witness will not be telling somebody what God will do for them. 
But you see in this story, the great witness out of this story is what God has done for you. Now, this will be a great lesson in this story of John chapter 9, and most probably the reason why God took so many verses to lay this thing out because of what he wanted us to see. I told you last week, I I mentioned about, again, uh, learning through object lessons. How about you, our families, our marriages, our lives, ministry, and kids should be an object lesson to others. You know, it's really, and I know most God's people don't think this way, so it becomes a a dead-end street, but it's really hard. I would think it would be hard. It, it would be hard for me. It, it, I would think it would really be hard to try to be a witness and tell somebody what God will do in their life when they look at your life and see that he hasn't done it. I mean, to me, that's, that just cancels the whole thing out. Because in our story today, people can deny what you say. They will absolutely deny what you tell them that God will do for them, but they cannot deny the change in your life. That's the great moral lesson, object lesson of this story. The word repentance, we know this from our past study, is never dealing with salvation, but rather a change in the direction of your life. The issue today is people claim to get saved, but there's absolutely no change in the direction of their life. There's no real biblical repentance, which you got to be careful with that because from this story, I'm not judging anything or anybody, but I am telling you from this story, when this guy got saved, it changed everything about him. Now you want to add to that the problem today and I get this. We have the mega churches out there, you know, and the small ones too, who have compromised the Word of God and have a church that supports a really non directional change of life after you get saved. And they, they, they don't want to separate you from the world, but rather want to keep you in church and bring the world into you. They'll completely ignore the Bible. They'll bring in the world's music, the world's psychology, all the things. Well, you know, you saw it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. They have, he tells us there that, that God's church in the Laodicean church age is built on no Bible, philosophy, vain deceit, the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. A couple of weeks ago, you remember I, I laid out for you the seven things that you lose in your life when you get the Word of God out of your life. Well, now you can add an eighth one today because you'll lose your witness. The only problem will be a lot of God's people who have the right Bible, a lot of God's people who believe the right Bible, they still don't have the right witness. Now, I talked last week about God's plan to reach the world. And this is my main thrust of my ministry, which you should know by now if you've been around here 
uh, any length of time. They reached the world in the Old Testament and the New Testament through families. There's no question about it in the Bible that that was God's plan in the Old Testament, and there's no question that that's God's plan in the New Testament. Now, here's where we start with that. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. We are to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's where it starts. Wouldn't it be absolutely, incredibly wonderful if there were people that were guaranteed to us by God that we could win them to Christ? Wouldn't that make it a lot simpler? It makes soul winning a breeze. Well, God has provided that. Because the only 100% guarantee to win someone to Christ that you, you and I have will be the ones in your own family, your kids. If you follow what the Word of God says about parenting, you and me as a parent have an absolute and total control over what our kids see, what they hear, how they grow up. I said it last week. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. And God gives you a complete protocol on training up your children. You don't raise kids. You raise rabbits, chickens, ducks. You train children. And you either train up a child in the way he should go, or you don't train up a child and away he goes. But it's just that simple. And of course, I, you know, I've had several parents, you know, over the last couple of months, and I've tried to lay out to you how that generation after generation, we should be building our children that after you and I are gone off the scene, the ministry of the Word of God goes on. The unbroken chain of moms and dads training up their children and leaving a legacy that is a heritage for the Lord that four, five, six generations down the line, we're long gone, but they're still carrying on what we started. I, I've said this before, and one of my burdens here with all of you young men and young ladies, singles who soon will be married, sooner or later, you know, you, you, my, my goal, and many of you came out of, of an, and I know some of you had good Christian moms and dads. We have some of them here today. And, uh, but I know some of you did not. And uh, you were pretty much an orphan when it came to spiritual things. <coughs> and God brought you here. And one of the things that I want to do, <coughs> I endeavor to do, I try to do, is to begin that cadence, begin that movement in your life that from this point on, you build the generations that God wants you to have. <coughs> generation after generations of moms and dads, grandpas, grandmas, kids forming a ministry team. I started to say, I've had over the last couple of months some of you parents come and talk to me because your kids now, girls and guys, you're getting to that age where they're noticing that there's difference between guys and gals. And now they want to date. 
And now there's guys that think they're attractive, and there's guys that she thinks is attractive, and now they want to they they get into, uh, you know, a dating relationship. And that scares moms and dads who are good Christian parents because the last thing you want to do is give your daughter to the wrong guy or your son to the wrong girl. You know, and... and in, 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 the, in, in the Bible, the great love story is Boaz and Ruth. And every parent wants their daughter to find a Boaz, and every parent wants their boy to find a Ruth. But you're scared to death that instead of your daughter finding a Boaz, he, she may find a lazy ass, a worthless ass. Listen carefully, a dumbass. I get that. But there's a way around that. You know what I tell them? I I tell them this. Well, so-and-so is going to come ask if he permission to date my daughter. And I said, okay. What are you nervous about? What are you scared about? I don't know. I just, it's a scary thing. Well, yeah. Hey, it's a scary thing. Okay, crossing the street's a scary thing. Driving down to Arthur Bryant's at 9 o'clock at night to get a sandwich is a scary thing. Here's what you do. You bring the guy in. You let him say to you, I really would like your permission to date your daughter. Shoot him on the spot. (laughs) End it. Right there. No. What you say is you say, you know what? I really appreciate that. But let me, under, let, let, let me have you understand something. My family is a ministry team. My family is, you need to look at my daughter or my son in the right light here. This is not something where you're going to waltz into our world and captivate her and sweep her off her feet or off your feet, him off her, his feet. And then Cascade to Niagara Falls, you know, and this is not what this is about. We have dedicated our family to the Lord, and we are going to build generations of moms and dads and kids and grandkids that are going to hold the torch high for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to understand, I didn't bring my daughter this far. I, I, didn't, I didn't bring her to this point where I'm going to turn her over to somebody that's going to break that chain that we have invested our life in with her. So you need to understand, I like you. You're really a nice guy. And you probably really love the Lord. But I want you to understand going in, this is not about you dating my daughter or my son. This is about are you willing to fit into our ministry team? Because you're not breaking it. Now, all that comes down to the influence that you have had in your child up to this point. If you've done what you should have done and and need to have done, and and most of you probably have done that, uh, it's a thing where, uh, you know, they, I I call this the Isaac Protocol. Isaac and Abraham had such a good relationship that Isaac, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was willing to lay in that altar, do whatever his dad said, believe whatever his dad said, 
because he trusted his dad more than anything else and anybody else on this planet. That's where you need to be. Don't ever give that up. Don't ever let somebody else take that. Don't let a coach, don't let a tool teacher, don't let a gym teacher, don't let anybody have more influence over your child than you have. Because when that day comes, they will already understand that they're not looking for a prospective boyfriend or a girlfriend. They're looking for a prospective person that will fit into the ministry team. You see, parents, and I've seen this all my life, you can fake it when the kids are three, four, five, and six. Because the disobedience and all that stuff, most people, you know, at least will cut you a little slack and they'll say, well, they're just kids. But you can't fake it when they're 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Now you see what you really have. And when your child's part of your ministry team, they will look at that person uh, in depth more than just the outward appearance because they will have ingrained in them that ministry families are ministry teams. And what you have started, or some of you have started, and some of you are coming through with some of your moms and dads that are here today, and many of your, some of your moms and dads that aren't here today. You're already part of that. And what you want to do is continue that on. The tragedy that I've seen in ministry with, with men who were, what, that I th- was convinced and everybody thought were really good pastors or really good preachers or maybe were deacons or they were Sunday school teachers. I, 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 I always looked at that, and I'm just being honest with you today. I mean, I've been in this business a while. I, I, I've learned some great object lessons, good and bad. I, and I'm telling you right now, it does no good for me or anybody else to stand in a pulpit and tell you and try to tell you how to raise your family if you haven't raised yours right yourself. It just doesn't work. Now, maybe God's people are so whatever that they just don't get that. But, hey, I've seen pastors that were good preachers and were supposedly good pastors. But their kids were just an absolute disaster. And I'm telling you right now, I've seen men who were great men in the Bible. And they were. And they were great preachers. But I've seen how their children have turned out and the fact that two or three generations from that pastor's death and going off the scene, nobody in that family will remember who he was, what he did, and how God used him. It gets lost. I had a friend of mine that was an evangelist. I haven't seen him for 30-some years, but this guy had an absolute burden for souls that you would never believe. I was with him in Romania after the wall came down and communism had been dispelled. And we went there with teams and held great revivals. And he was the preacher. I have never seen a man who had more of a passion for souls than he did. And he would preach up there, and I ain't kidding you, literally hundreds of people would come forward. 
At some point after that, his boy who got, wouldn't go to church and was so despondent about everything committed suicide. Now, I feel terrible about that, and this is certainly not a criticism in any way, shape, or form. But I ask myself, where did the idea come from that winning the world to Christ was more important than your family? I knew another missionary that him and his wife were great people. And they spent all their life on the mission field. And they put their kids in private schools, hadn't seen them for 10, 15 years while they were doing the work. And then wondered why their kids wanted nothing to do with God, the Bible, and the church. Where, I'm asking, where did the idea start? Where did it come from? Who infused that into Christianity that reaching the world was great, but losing your family was oops. My point is this. You have no witness except what God has done in your life, in your family. The object lessons that you have have to be the object lessons to others who don't have it. What good is it for me to tell anybody what God will do for them if he's not doing it in my life? You see, this chapter is an incredible chapter. You can already tell you don't like it because you're so quiet this morning. The broken cycle of family ministries. Building strong families. It starts with you singles. I know I never changed the world. I'm not interested. I tried it a long time ago and found out I was greatly outnumbered. So I decided to start with you guys. You singles, you young couples that have just gotten married or you've been married for a while but you really found the Lord and you're falling in love and no matter where you're at with your kids, there's always something you can do and most of you are doing it. Redeeming that time, doing everything you know how to do. But it's you singles, it's you young couples that my, my goal is to begin to build you now that when you find that special person that they become part of your family's ministry team. And it's not just this is my son-in-law, this is my daughter-in-law. It's the fact that together your family is the object lesson to other families. Now, this story today, I want to break it down into five easy pieces. Five aspects of what he's trying to show us here today that a real witness should be. And if I said, I think this is the reason why he's taken 41 verses to lay all this story out, because he, he goes into great detail to try to show us what a real witness through a man's life should be that was blind, unsaved, and now he sees, he's saved. And watch what follows. Now the first thing will be verses 1 through 7, and we, we talked about this last week. Last week we saw where this man got saved. We saw his salvation. This man was born blind, picture of us being born into sin, blinded by this world, cannot see the things of God. 
And then he meets Jesus, like all of us did, and he gets his eyesight back, and now he sees. Now, that's a great picture, stay with me, of me and you. That's what happened. Now, note in the story, and oh, I love this. The first thing he sees when he gets his eyesight back is the one who healed him, the Lord Jesus. Salvation in its simplest form is that right there. When you take the scales of sin off our eyes, the first thing I saw was the Lord Jesus. I never understood him before. I always looked at him through the scales of this life. But when he took me as a blind man and gave me my eyesight, the first thing I saw was the one who gave me my eyesight. Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is for the first time. And then from that point on, no matter what we look at or see, we always see it through him. He's the first one we saw when we got saved. He had to be the one that we see in everything after we get saved and never lose sight of him. You know why some of God's people are, and I love them, they're good people, but they're cold, they're hard, they're indifferent. You know why? You know why they lose their edge? Because you lost sight of him. You see, the first thing we saw when he took the scales of sin off our eyes, there he was. We now have the ability to see him as he really is. Now the key is never after that moment seeing him, once we see him in the light of day, losing sight of him ever again. So that was what happened. He got saved. Now, here it comes, the second thing. Look at verses 8 through 12. We're going to pick it up now. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Nah, he is like him. But he said, Nope, I am him. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? And he said, I know not. Now, the, the, the next thing I want you to see, the number two thing here is the fact in verse 8. His neighbors... And those people close to him saw a difference in his life. He was a beggar, but he's not a beggar anymore. He's already turned in five applications to Armco Steel, Republic Steel, and CVS, and all those other places. He can see now. He went from the bread line to the gold mine. Boy, from that I understand a real salvation will be about a changed life. People have to see the difference. Can you even imagine, and I know you probably wouldn't even think about this. I never thought about it until I started laying this out. 
Could you imagine the joy that this man must have experienced from going to blindness, complete darkness, to being able to see? I mean, this is not a case that he had his eyesight till he was 20 or 30 and then he got some disease and took his eyesight from him. No. This guy was born blind. Can you imagine the excitement that this guy must have felt? Can you even put yourself in his place that here he is one day begging alongside the road. He meets a man named Jesus. He gives him his eyesight back and instantaneously every dimension of his life now has changed. He sees what he couldn't see. He doesn't need anybody's help to get him down to the road. Every dynamic of his life By God giving him his eyesight, it changed every aspect of his life. And he's excited about it. Can you imagine what it would be like to be born blind for 30, 40 years and then suddenly get to see? Buddy, that's what happened to you the other night. You were blind and now you see. It shows in your face. It shows in your handshake. It shows in your countenance. You were blind from birth. But now there's excitement in your life because you went from darkness into the light. God saved you. He took the scales off your eyes. And now you've got something to be excited about. That's what it does. It changes us. How can we still be the same old person how can we ever, ever, ever get to the point in our life where, and, and I understand, life is tough, things happen, but if you keep him, the first one you saw, in front of everything that you see, and that's what should happen to us. When God takes the scales off our eyes, we see God and the things of God clearly. I have never understood a child of God that truly is saved, how they can get over the day that God saved them. I am far from perfect. I make my mistakes. Believe me, I'm not standing up here and telling you I've arrived in any way, shape, or form. But I will tell you this, with all of my frailties and stupidity and with all of my things in life that that are my struggles, I'm going to tell you something. I never got over the day that he saved me. It's the thing that will get me through when nothing else will. It's the thing that will give me hope when there is no hope. It's the thing that will be the light at the end of the tunnel. It's the thing that in the black darkness of this old world, I saw him that day when he took the scales off my eyes. And I don't understand how you can lose sight of him. I understand you do, but I understand how you can. What experience in life could match the day that you were blind and now you can see? I, I, I don't understand. Third thing we need to see. Verses 13 through 18. Here it comes. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, 
the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of them of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a great division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he openeth thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Now, the third thing here, and this is great. Now we see the Pharisees show up, and the Pharisee and the religious leaders will picture for us the world system that has one goal, and that is to take away from you the specialty of the day God gave you your eyesight. The world will always try to deny the miracle that God did in your life, the new birth in your life. Opposition will come, and they will try to tell you, as he does in verse 16, this man was not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath. That's proof. Little did they know that the blind man healed on the Sabbath day is a picture of the seventh millennial day when God is going to heal the nation of Israel. Little did they know when they had the scriptures, little did they know in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Doesn't apply to him. Hey, when you get saved, darkness to light, the world will never understand it. Your friends won't understand it. Sometimes your mom and your dad don't understand it. Your relatives don't understand it. They'll say, hey, you know, salvation, going to church, Christianity, oh, it's just an emotional issue. They'll tell you that, oh, hey, you know, don't get caught up in the religion because it's just a crutch. It's something that man designed to get him through that isn't really true. And it's a device, you know, the real truth, son, the real truth is going to be found in science. The real truth is going to be found in philosophy. The real truth is going to be found in, you know, psychiatry or the government system. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. The world, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious crowd, the government, all of the unsaved people, they will always come into your world and try to tell you what just happened to you didn't really happen. Except, oops, he was blind. <laughs> and now he sees. Years ago, some of you may remember this. What, a, what an object lesson this was for me. There was a guy on the radio that was a psychologist and a psychiatrist by the name of Marshall Safer. Remember him, Troy? How many remember old Marshall? Oh, yeah. And I used to listen to him all the time. He was on the radio. He was the most anti-Christianity, Bible, Christ, religious guy on the face of the planet. He had bought into totally and completely 
that the Bible was a hoax, Christianity was a crutch, Jesus Christ was, a, was, was nothing, and if you really wanted to solve your problems, it was psychiatry, it was psychology, it was the men with learned degrees that could take you and really help you understand who you really are. He had an incredible following in Kansas City, right up to the point where he blew his brains out. People were angry, and rightly so. What a great object lesson. I praise God that, that uh, I, I remember when it happened, I preached a whole series on it, on him, hoping that I would gain some people out of it that might find the truth. But you know what his problem was? The same problem we all have many times, that what he really believed really didn't work for him. And while he's on the radio telling you all this stuff and bad-mouthing Christianity, he's loading a six-shooter. And when his own system failed him, he took his own life. What an object lesson that is. What a lesson that was for me back then. All the things that the modern-day scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees will tell you for one reason, to take the joy and remove from your eyesight the first one you saw is the one that saved you. Now we want to look at the fourth thing. This is a really good one. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, verse 18, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son? Who you say was born blind, how then doth he now see? And his parents answered and said, We know not, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth, we know not, or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already if any man did confess that he was Christ, Jesus, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Now I think this is a really a good point here because I want you to understand it from this passage, and I understand what's going on, but the great principle here is simply this. Nobody else can be your witness for you. You have to be your own witness. Your mom can't do it. Your dad can't do it. Your husband can't do it. Your wife can't do it. You have to be your own witness. Verse 18, called his parents. Find out what really happened to him. And in verse 19, okay, where is he now? I don't know. Was he really blind? Yes, he was. How did he see? I don't know. Verse 23, ask him. Nobody else can be your witness. Nobody can be the witness in your life for Christ. Nobody. It has to be you. When I was reading this, I was reminded of a story that's one of my favorite back in 2 Kings chapter 4, which many of you will probably identify with. It's the story of Elisha who had come on the scene after Elijah goes up to heaven. 
and it's dealing with Elisha and the Shumanite woman. And uh, she has a son who dies. And uh, that's a picture of an unsaved person. And so she calls for the man of God, Elisha, because she knows of his reputation. She knows he's the man of God. She knows he's the prophet. So she sends somebody to get Elisha to come and give her son life. Now that's a picture of somebody who's unsaved and needs a man of God, a woman of God, to give him life. Now in our story, Elisha says, oh, okay, I'm really busy today. I got a heavy schedule. I can't make that trip. I'm going to send my number one servant, Gehiza, and I'm going to send him down to fix this lady's problem to give her boy life who is now dead and bring him out of the dark hold of death into the cool day of light. So Gehazi goes down there, and guess what? <coughs> he can't do it. That kid stays dead. So Gehazi goes back to Elijah or Elisha, and he says, hey, it didn't work. I didn't have the power to do that. And Elisha says, or Elisha says, okay. So he goes down, and through the process of the story, he brings that boy back to life. My moral of the story is this. You cannot send somebody else to do what God has called you to do. Nobody else can be your witness. If God's called you to do it, you have to do it. You can't send somebody else. I, I got a great sermon out of Second Kings chapter 4, and I've preached it many, many times. And I, uh, and I, I always deal with it in the aspect of our witness. And there's three things that when I preach that sermon that I find that God's people will do so they don't have to be a witness. And I always tell them, look, if God saved you, he's got a job for you to do and a mandate that we are to be his witnesses. And we need to be his witnesses not by telling people what he will do for them, but showing them as this man here what God had done for him. And then I tell them, as to your witness, praise the Lord that so many of God's people in this church give. That you believe in this church. You want this church to prosper and pay the bills and do everything that we need to do. You get the concept that this is your church home. Therefore, you're to support it. But I want to tell you right now, giving will never replace your living for the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know that. I, I appreciate we have our prayer list and our prayer groups and our, our little Zoomy people out there. They get on the line every week and, and have their prayer request. And we got some great prayer, prayer warriors in this church. You pray about things. You take things seriously. But I'm going to tell you, Praying is no excuse for staying and not being a witness for God. We've got young men and young ladies who really know the Bible. It's been my goal to try to raise up men and women in this church who really have a handle on the Word of God. 
and really know the Bible, that you can be part of the ministry here and, and take the part of my work and, and do what you need to do. And God has been good. I, I look at you young men and young ladies as I scan across this crowd. There's some out there that really you know your Bible very well, and I commend you for that. But I want to tell you, when it comes to your witness, knowing will never replace going. You need to be God's witness. And it has to start with you and your family and the object lessons. Not of what God is going to do for somebody else. What God has changed about me. What he has done in my family that changed them. Then the last thing, verses 24 through 30. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Christ. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. They, they said, then said they unto him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore, will you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Now, I, I, I got a chuckled when I read this. How many ever saw the movie No Country for Old Men? One of you. My favorite part is when that guy who's killing everybody with the compressed air goes into that trailer park, looks for the guy who's got his money, can't find him, and then goes into that lady who's running the park. Remember that? And he says, this guy's a psychopath, murderer. He says, where's so-and-so? Well, he's at work. Where does he work? I cannot give you that information, sir. Where does he work? She's a feisty little thing. She says, sir, I can't give you that information. He's frustrated. He says, where does he work? She says, I cannot give you that information. I get the feeling that's what this guy did here. They asked him three, four times, hey, how'd you get to, he did it. I was blind. Did he do it? Yeah. How did he do it? I was blind and I can't see. You've asked me that three times. Listen to me. I was blind and now I see. And I don't know if it happened that way, but I hope it did. <laughs> then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for the, this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is? And yet he hath opened my eyes. You know what he's saying? He's saying, You're telling me you don't know who he is, you don't know where he come from, but you want to deny the fact that he opened my eyes. You see, the world will always want a plausible explanation of the answer of the change in your life. But a real, real witness for God will never be that because it's supernatural. 
The natural man received not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They, 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 they defy all the laws of logic. It's a miracle of God. And in our story, the man just gives a simple, straightforward answer. He doesn't get into theology. He doesn't talk about uh, what church he goes to. He just simply says, I was blind and now I see. And they can't get it. They don't believe it. But here's the problem. They can't deny it. You see, they could deny if he just said it. And they're denying that anything ever happened, but they are stuck with the fact that he was blind, and now he sees. They will never be able to explain the change in your life. But if there is no change, you get explained away. The joy of being blind, and now you can see the excitement of a new life in Christ. In verse 24 through 30, they, they try every way they can to deny this supernatural miracle. They say about Christ, well, he's a sinner. And then they say, no, what again did he do? Oh, you're one of his disciples. This thing must be a hoax so you can just give him the credibility you never really were blind, were you? Well, we're of Moses. We're the real deal, not him. We're the Bible scholars. We've got a college education. We've got PhDs. We've got all these degrees, doctors of theology. We're the real deal. Believe on us, not him. Everything they could do, get it now. Everything they could do to discredit this man's salvation, and yet they can't explain how everybody says he was truly blind and now he sees. And the real part of the problem is they can't do that. If he hangs with them, he's still blind. It took a man named Jesus in a very simple, straightforward way to give this man his eyesight. And it took very simply salvation for all of us when we found Christ as our own personal Savior. But the real question is, did it change our lives? When we first saw him, when the scales of this world were pulled back and we saw him as he really is, is he still in that position today? The miracle God did in his life is unexplainable, yet it's undeniable. He answers the same every time. He never varies from it. His witness is the same. They question him, verse 25, and his answer is, one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. I don't know. I don't know who he was. I don't know where he came from. I only know one thing. I am not the same person I was an hour ago. In verse 27, and again, they come after him again, and he says, I have told you already, and you're not hearing me. Shall I tell you again? I was blind, and now I see. That's all he says. <coughs> That's all he has to say. Because they tried to deny everything that God did in his life, but they could never deny that he was blind, 
and now he sees. And finally, verse 30, he says, they come after him again. He says, why (coughs) herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. He said, you know, you you claim not to know who he is, where he come from. You say he's a sinner. You say he's not a prophet. You say you're the real deal. How come you could never open my eyes? And from this story, we see that there's no real witness for God without a changed life. All we can do is tell people what God will do for them, but a real witness, the real object lesson of our life will be what God has done for us, my family, my life, everything about me changed the day you got saved. The problem is God's people, when they see him for that first time, they lose sight of him. Let me tell you something. This world today, probably unlike any other time in history, no Bible, no real churches, no real preaching. All God has to rely on in most cases is people like me and you. I've looked at my position and what I try to do in this church and what I try to teach and everybody else out there, and I don't know how many times I've said it, God, if you're... If you're looking for me to change this thing, you got the wrong guy. But you know what? He'll do it through us. He'll do it through you. He'll take your life and in time your family for generations after generations to be the light that shineth in darkness. To be able to give people the object lesson. Because this world is, is bent to destroy families. This world is on a course to destroy everything, to break up families, to destroy kids. Look across this country at the kids in schools that are going and killing other kids in school. In my day, that never happened. The best thing that ever happened back then was an M80 down the toilet stool. And where's the parents? Broken, broken families, broken kids, kids who defy authority. You know, when I looked out there in L.A. and all those places in California where they got those crash and grab things, where they're breaking in and busting things and just shoplifting everything, I never saw one person that I looked like he was over 30 or 40. They were all young kids, every one of them. Every one of them defy any kind of authority. Where does that start? Families broken. If there ever was a time that the greatest witness that we could have would be the object lessons of our family and our lives to people like that, who you know they're not, many of them are not happy. You know they're looking for the answers. The problem is the lives and the families and the marriages of Christians is no different than the world. And yet, we claim to be Christians. We claim to be saved. They have the witness of a sure foundation. Somebody who has the Lord and understands it. You see, the key is 
Now, the great story in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27 is not to build your house, your family, on shifting sand, but to build it on a rock. Because when you build it on shifting sands, the sands are blown by the wind, and what may be here today will be gone tomorrow. What is visible today will be covered up and buried by morning. Building your family and your house on the shifting sands is never the way to do it. Because as it says, <clears throat> when the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew <clears throat> and beat upon the house, it fell apart. You have to build something in your house that will withstand the wind, the rain, and all of the things that are coming that way. And there's only one way we can do that. <clears throat> I'm not out to reach this world. I'm not out to reach this city or this state. I'm out to reach one person at a time that God brings in here that wants to build their family on a rock and then help them do that. And maybe you're in a situation where, <clears throat> you know, your major mistakes and your kids are out there. There's always something you can do. You can redeem the time. You can become blameless in that. You can do what you need to do. But it all starts back where it all starts. And that is the change in our lives and letting the Word of God do for us. The world, they can't see it. They can't explain it, and in many cases, they so desperately want it. And it's that witness of what God has done for you and your family and your life that God will use. I had a friend of mine one time, <clears throat> and I don't get to see him as much as I'd like to, <clears throat> but him and I have preached together before, and he said one sometime, and, and I've never forgotten what he said. And boy, it's so true. He was preaching someplace about witnessing. And <clears throat> being a witness. And he said, you know what? Every Christian ought to be a witness. And sometimes we should even use words. Meaning the greatest witness we have is not what we say, but what we live. The object lesson. To each other first to the, where we work, <clears throat> to all around the world that people see in you what they don't have. And the real proof is not you getting up and saying, hey, God will do this for you if you do this. It's the real proof is like this guy said, hey, you know what? <laughs> I was blind. Now I see. Well, how did he do that? I met a man named Jesus who reached down and made clay, put it on my eyes and simply told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. What? You didn't go to a church? You didn't go to Bible college? You didn't go this? You didn't get that? There was no theology involved? No. He just put it on my eyes and told me to wash. And the moment I washed, I saw him. And his name is Jesus. That's the witness we should have. And never, never, never losing sight of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We ask you now, Father, to take what we've talked about today and let it be a witness uh, to our own hearts first and then to each other. And then as we take it out and let God do with us what he wants to do, letting our lives, our families, generation after generation, be that heritage of the Lord, that witness, that unbroken bond of ministry teams together 
that they may deny what you say, but they'll never deny the difference in your life. And we ask all these things now in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen.